if someone were to say, hey, look, I want to start up a company in New Zealand and make an impact in Silicon Valley, it's this collective sucking in of air over the teeth. Do you know why? Did you really? Do you really want to do that? Is that really possible? And it was kind of like, well, why isn't it? Why isn't it possible? Let's just do it. Let's just see what happens. So I had no clear idea of the amount of, the amount of work that was required. Like none at all. And it just hit me with a ton of bricks. It was kind of like, I have no idea how the United States works. Like none. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When living outside of a tech market, things can always seem foreign. Things can seem like they're a further reach than they are. And sometimes they are. Well, that was the case for Dave Tenhavi. Dave recently joined our team as part of the engineering leadership, and he's got a ton of experience in both engineering and as a founder. Dave's originally from New Zealand, and early in his career, when he founded a company called Panoco that focused on 3D printing tech, being a platform for people to aggregate their designs, well, he was an outsider in the valley. Eventually, he found his way into different publications, things like Wired, things like Inc., all these magazines that he would see on newsstands as a kid. He remembers this one experience where he saw Wired for the first time. He picked it up in his hand from a newsstand, and he still has that issue to this day. But he said that's what inspired him to get into tech in the first place. Well, that journey took him forward through a number of different companies that he co-founded or he was in a leadership position. In 2019, he co-founded another company, one called Omniblox, another software company. Eventually, that led him to meeting our team. Omniblox was very much a remote company, and so was Levels. After further conversations, it made sense for Dave and his team to join forces with Levels so that we could focus on building our software, something that we're trying to do. Dave was very much behind our mission. And being remote, being in New Zealand, well, that wasn't a factor. It was a great conversation and we talked about Dave's backstory, how he became an engineer, why he loves engineering so much, and what he's looking forward to in the future. So here's where we kick things off. So anyway, thought it would be good to dive in and talk about your experience because you recently joined the team as an engineer that has a ton of experience as a software engineer. <laughs> And also as a founder, like you've been an exec at startups, you've founded your own companies and really started like if we take it all the way back to this foundation, maybe even before Pinoco, when you were doing everything pertaining to 3D printing. Let's start with the idea of like, how did you get into engineering to begin with? Yeah, right. Good question. I still vividly remember coming home at the age of eight and seeing a 8-bit computer that dad had bought. But it wasn't for 10 years that I really genuinely got into engineering. The precursor to it was another 
vivid moment, which was seeing the first issue of Wired magazine on the newsstand. Back then, the graphic design for Wired stood out. There was nothing like it. All the tech and computer magazines that existed were all glossy and shiny and had these serious kind of design colors. And then there was this crazy magazine full of spelling mistakes. And, you know, it was just the first issue. I've still got it. I've still got the first issue because it's so important to me. But the reason that's important is because for the first time ever, it was kind of like, oh, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to be. That's what I want to be doing. It was kind of like, oh, holy shit, I found my tribe. And you ended up being on Wired, didn't you? Yeah, been on Wired a couple of times. So yeah, that was cool. I uh, got to know at the time the editor of Wired. Chris Anderson. So, yeah, Chris Anderson, yeah. It has played an oversized role in my career from an aspirational point of view. And then like a lot of those <laughs> aspirational things, you finally turn up in Silicon Valley and you just kind of realize the bill of goods that was really being sold in that magazine. <laughs> it was kind of like, huh, okay, yeah, right. Not too sure I want to be here. Not too sure I like these people. Not too sure I like the way they do business. And so that's where it's also played a really interesting role because it was a I mean, at its core, it's still an incredibly valuable publication, but I think for me, it told a story and that story was idealized and I don't want to say it was artificial. It wasn't, but it was definitely the PR rag for Silicon Valley. There's no doubt mm -hmm. about it, but it was at the age of 16, I found this magazine and went, that's what I want to do. And then I spent 16 years. I was 32 when I got to San Francisco for the first time. I spent 16 years trying to get the skill set that got me to Silicon Valley with a startup that was exciting enough to grab people's attention. And a key element of that was learning how to write software. And so, so let's go into that idea from the outside in, right? So you're in New Zealand at the time. I'm 16 years old, and you see this thing that is foreign in every respect. Like, it's a new magazine, a new publication, foreign by geography. What did that feel like as far as, did it feel accessible? Did it feel like, man, I could reach for this thing? Or was it one of those things that you put, you sort of like manufactured in your mind and put on a pedestal to be like, this is the Mecca? What did that? Yeah, like when you were I, I get this thing that just felt so far away from where you were located and like how, what was the path and how you thought you were going to get there? So it's a little bit of option C, right? Kind of a combination of the two things that I think the thing about the stories, particularly in the first couple of years of Wired Magazine, was that the stories felt accessible. While it was obviously lionizing the entrepreneurs, the tech entrepreneurs that were there, I think one of the big things about Wired Magazine that separated it from the likes of Macworld or PC World or those things was the cultural content. It was obvious that the editorial team, Kevin Kelly and Negroponte at the time, 
had gone, hey, look, the Bay Area is this melting pot of tech and art and all of those sorts of things. And so in many respects, that combo of that kind of stir fry of things made it feel accessible. But yeah, it was totally a, eventually I'll get to Mecca thing. And so that became, or it was at the time, an aspirational goal. So to answer the second part of the question, you know, what was the process? Well, it was kind of like, at the time, there was kind of this established mechanism in Wellington where Victoria University, which is the college that I went to, is on the top of the hill. Wellington's like San Francisco, the city, but super condensed. It's like there are hills, there's a flat area, and then there are hills. And you can walk back and forward in 15 minutes. It's tiny, but it's super condensed. So the college sits on top of the hill and there is the street called the terrace and the terrace runs down the hill through consultancy businesses and banks and, and eventually ends up at the bottom where the government departments are. The joke was that you went to college, you rolled down the terrace, you picked up a consultancy gig on the way down and you did that for a couple of years and then you either went into government or you did your own thing. That was kind of the joke. But that's exactly what I did. So I rolled down the terrace and I picked up a job at a software consultancy called Glacier Systems. It had just been acquired. This was the dot-com era, the first dot-com era. And there was a big M&A roll-up going on in New Zealand and Glacier got acquired. I went to work and they became Advantage Group and I went to work for them. And then with four other people, we left and started our own consultancy business. But in the meantime, I ended up working for people like Rod Drury, for instance, who's a very famous entrepreneur in New Zealand, responsible for a company called Zero, which is kind of like QuickBooks, but for the rest of the world. Yeah, I left that consultancy business, the consultancy business that I founded, which is still running. It's still 20 years on, 21 years on. It's still, I mean, they, they've done such a good job. I'm so impressed with them. Left that and then ended up starting Pinoco. Yeah. And that was compelling enough that when it was pitched to TechCrunch, they went, yeah, come and present at the first TechCrunch, which is what we ended up doing. When you're doing all this, like you're, you've got this mental picture in my mind of like you holding on to this first issue of Wired and you're looking at this thing. Did you think to yourself, like being an outsider, outsider geographically, not even on the same landmass, right? <laughs> and by proximity far away too. It's not one of those things where it's like you're still close by flight. You're far away. Did you feel... Or were you curious of like, man, how hard do I have to work? What do I have to do in trying to figure out that? Because your benchmark, like not being around that geography, it's like you don't know where you stand as far as, let's use running as an analogy. If you don't know if running 50 miles a day is 
a lot, a little, or at the mean, how do you figure that out? Like you're trying to figure out for yourself of like, man, how hard do I have to work to reach the Mecca? Like, what were you doing? And I'm assuming you were an anomaly amongst your friend group or the people that you surrounded yourself with where they're like, man, Dave, what are you talking about? This wired? We don't do that here. That's for like that other place. What did that sort of look like? How hard you worked in the way that everyone around you thought about what you were wanting to get into? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because there's, in New Zealand's tech history, right, this is prior to Lord of the Rings. The moment Lord of the Rings kicked off in New Zealand, I got a very mixed relationship with that entire <laughs> thing. You can rant about it. It's okay. We can digress. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it has all the problems that one movies and technology and government subsidies and shitty labor relations and all of those sorts of things have got. <laughs> But I also have to be completely upfront about the fact that the third business that I ran and the first business that I sold was full of people who were attracted to Wellington because of Lord of the Rings. Like a you know, very good friend of mine, still very good friend of mine, has got a technical Oscar for the work that he did on Star Wars and Avatar, but he'd been attracted to New Zealand because of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so it's prior to that. So we're still with, I don't know what Canada is like, but, you know, New Zealand had a very deep cultural self-loathing thing going on in the late 70s, early 80s, and even into the mid-90s. But we were slowly getting over that. And so it was very much a thing of, yeah, what I wanted to do was exceedingly unusual at the time. I love New Zealand. I still live here, but I didn't like the kind of parochial attitudes that existed. If someone were to say, hey, look, I want to start up a company in New Zealand and make an impact in Silicon Valley, there's this collective sucking in of air over the teeth. Do you know, I, did you really, do you want to, do you really want to do that? Is that really possible? Well, why isn't it possible? Let's just do it. Let's just see what happens. So I had no clear idea of the amount, of, the amount of work that was required, like none at all. In fact, I was so ignorant that I remember like three years into that experience of being in the States, I remember standing on Valencia Street one day and it just hit me with a ton of bricks. It was kind of like, I have no idea how the United States works. Like none. <laughs> And I'd been there, I'd been operating there for three years. And it was just kind of like, I've got no idea how this place works. I got sucked into the idea that I understood the United States because I grew up with US media. I'm a kid of the 80s. So I grew up with the A-Team and Knight Rider and all of that. And the music, Springsteen and John Mellencamp and all of those sorts of things. As much as I grew up with British content, right? So BBC and Dire Straits and all of that sort of stuff. And I spoke the same language and they used dollars and cents and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there was just this visceral moment of, oh, I'm a stranger in a strange land. I eventually, the disconnect became apparent. I think that's the best example of how little thought I really 
really put into how much work was required to get it done, you know. And so when you're on that path, and by the way, you're singing a love language to my musical heart with all those references to Mark Knopfler and Springsteen right. and Mellencamp, yeah. why not? Yeah. Lovely, lovely. But when you're doing that, eventually you made it there and you get there and you think like, what exactly is going on here? It seemed like, from what you said, it seems almost like a false bill of sale. Like there was this manufactured outlook on what you thought it would be and you got there and it seemed like it was a lot different. So let's go into this whole idea of Pinoco as we like take this path, maybe frame exactly what Pinoco is and why it was so culturally relevant and so absurd, if you want to use that, that <laughs> word, like it was absurd to think that one of the world's leading 3D printing platforms, we'll call it platform because it was part of the ecosystem, yeah, yeah. but yeah. was located exactly... <laughs> opposite direction of where everything in the world pertaining to 3D printing and all of the buzz around it was happening. Yeah, when you frame it like that, it is absurd. When you frame it from the point of view of living on an island where the next stop is literally Antarctica, <laughs> when you are that far away from the rest of the world, the idea of being able to fabricate anything you want at the press of a button without having to wait for shipping actually makes a lot more sense. You know, New Zealand is a long, as you've pointed out at the beginning of the story, it's a long way from anything, which means it's expensive to get stuff and you've got to wait for it. So in that context, it's kind of like, yeah, hell, if I could have a system where I just pressed a button and it spat something out there, that makes a lot more sense. Let's digress too for a sec into it because this is like mid 2000, so 2006 ish. Yeah, when you founded it. What exactly is it? Just so that everyone listens. Yeah, yeah. So it's a the it, frame of reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was one of the very first digital factories, right? That's how the guy I co-founded with and myself kind of structured the idea. It was this idea that with digital fabrication technologies like 3D printing and laser cutting and CNC routing, you could essentially back in an entire factory with a big database of designs. And you could look through that big database and go, I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And you could hit the print button and they would pop out of some magical machine. And the core bits of the magical machine already existed, right? 3D printers had been around for a while. CNC routers had been around for, since the 50s, right? maybe even earlier, and laser cutters had been around for 20 or 30 years at the time as well. And then the crazy thing was they're all based on the same computational technology. I mean, numerical control was something that came out of the US Navy in the early 50s. So they were all based on the same thing. And it was kind of like, well, okay, if they're all use, if they all speak the same sort of language, then you just integrate them all and you have this magical device that produces both additive and subtractive parts, so additive being 3D printing where you build up and then subtractive being where you cut stuff out of sheets or out of lumps of atoms. And so you could, by combining those additive parts and those subtractive parts, you make amazing things. And it's one of those timing things where the maker movement was just kicking off at that point in time. 
Maker Faire had just kind of started to hit its straps as part of that Web 2.0 thing that was going on in 2005-2006. The really fundamental thing there was that it moved this concept of successful technologists from just being computer programmers to being metal workers or industrial designers or knitters and sewers and chemists. So all of a sudden, what the maker movement did was it just blew out the space of opportunity. But the tools that existed were hugely primitive. Where this really started from was that I had gone through a phase of designing skateboards of all things. And I wanted to get these particular skateboard hubs milled out of aluminium. And I found this place in one of the suburbs of Wellington. And the quote that came back was jaw-dropping. It was like $10,000 for 100 units or something insane like that. And I just looked at that and went, that is ridiculous. I can design it on my laptop right now. Why can't I just have a print button? Where is my print button? Why do I need to pay $10,000? So the maker movement was made up of, or I saw it as being inhibited by those sorts of things because services like Pinoco didn't really exist at the time. And it was kind of like, well, let's just make one of those. It was a personal itch. It was something that annoyed me. It was something that technically I knew how to construct to make it work. And that's what we did. Yeah, it was a wild thing because the barrier to entry was assumed there was access to the machines. So anything that you're doing CNC or 3D printing, the barrier for a lot of people was being able to design the actual files. Yeah, And so right. having the aggregation that Pinoco did was like, hey, here's how we're going to create access for more people to do this and make it open source. Yeah, but exactly. It was a wild thing because I was a, such a huge fan of Pinoco and everything you were doing and I was watching it. I was a kid grabbing the, magazine. I was a kid right. reading about what's happening. And then when we had first connected, I was like, wait a minute, I've known of what you've done for so long that it was sort of one of those fan yeah, yeah, moments. But yeah, no. my, my friend and I used to admire it so much. Like it was just interesting. It feels analogous to that idea that you brought up of like seeing the Wired magazine and picking it up, being the yeah, outsider. Right. And be yeah, like, yeah. wow. Like, you yeah. know, so it's like hearing the full story of the way that it was built from the outside. I thought you guys were in the valley. The framing of it felt like that. It felt very much like a valley company. That was for very explicit reasons, right? Because one, I wanted to be in the valley. That's, that's where I wanted to be. Uh, and two, that was the sort of story that I wanted to tell. It was a science fictional aspirational story. All of the significant stories bar one that had impact on me came from the Valley. The only one that didn't came from Wellington. It was Icebreaker, the clothing manufacturer. So the language and the brand and the vibe and the voice and the nature of interaction and all of those sorts of things were 100% ripped off from what was going on in the Valley. You know, that was exactly what we did. So it was look like a valley company. Let's go to the valley and then let's see whether or not we can raise some money there. And 
that's where the bill of goods kicked in, or at least <laughs> that's an unfair assessment. That's where my ignorance of the actual process of raising venture capital kicked in, what it really, really meant. And so we'd end up having these conversations where we'd go down to Sand Hill Road and we'd go into a VC's office and the opening conversation would, look, I said, hey, you, you realize we're from New Zealand, right? And they'd go, yeah, look, it's not a problem. We invest all over the world. We invest in Israel. That was generally where they stopped at that point in time. So it was kind of, okay, cool. Well, I think I've set the expectations. We're all good. And then the conversation would go on and go on and go on. And then there'd be the sucking of air through teeth. And they'd go, yeah, but you're based in New Zealand. You know that, right? I know. I told you right at the beginning of this conversation, you know, what? That's where I really misunderstood the cultural component of Silicon Valley, the business culture, not the other stuff, the MBA, the Stanford, Harvard MBA culture of, of the Valley at the time, which was, yeah, I didn't look anything like. So in New Zealand, I wasn't anything like Kiwis, but then I'd go to the States and I was nothing like the entrepreneurs that they wanted to invest in. I didn't have a college degree from Stanford and I didn't, or Harvard or any of the Ivy League ones. Probably didn't wear chinos well enough for whatever it was, the visual trigger. The black Patagonia vest, you need one of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) I think the challenge is that there were these funding phases, if you want to call it that. So let's not go all the way back, all the way back, but actually let's go back to like mid 2000s. So funding phase being Stanford, Harvard, Berkeley, like Bay Area, notable university. That was the verification queue. That was the heuristic that was used of like, you're verified, you can raise capital. And I'm generalizing right now, but this is like generally on what was reported and what you'd see get funded was, hey, we backed like two more founders who are Stanford MBAs. I'm making this up, but that was like typically the story. And then like call it, 20, it was more around like 2012-ish, like 2012 to like 2020, probably less so now, but like 2020, YC was the verification. So it was like, you don't need the college degree. No. But it was really hard to raise capital if you didn't have either of those qualifications or either of those like check marks. And Sam and Josh experienced this when they first started trying to raise capital for levels of the seed round. This was January of 2020. And Sam had started reaching out to investors. And people said, cool, where are you guys located? And it was, oh, we're entirely remote. Like our whole team is remote. And it was, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And then COVID hits and like things went dark. And then June, things started picking up again. Like people were responding to emails. And the responses were, Tell us more about this remote thing that you guys are doing because it seems to be something, right? And so now, like, you're on this team and you're located in in a different part of the world, but it's like kind of full circle back to the, hey, maybe this thing that you were trying to position as, it never really mattered, actually doesn't matter. And I think the reason people were, had risk aversion towards anything outside of certain geographic areas, like call it 15 years ago, was because they thought there's no way you can ever access talent and build talent and do all these things. 
And it's like, yeah. well, that's entirely wrong. Yeah, well, that's right. And even back then, I built a team that was split between New Zealand and West Oakland. And then went on to do exactly the same thing with Makey Makey, you know? Mm-hmm. Ran Makey Makey from New Zealand with a team that was smeared all over the United States. But I think both examples highlight the gatekeeping exercise that occurs with venture capital and the reliance on heuristics. There's that Paul Graham quote, which he either said it or he didn't, but unfortunately it's attributed to him, which is, you know, if someone like Mark Zuckerberg walks into my office, I'm completely full. I will invest in that company. And so I think that was, well, no, I know that was never explicitly stated. It's never been explicitly stated, at least in the period of time that I was in the Valley, that no, we're not interested in you because you don't match this set of heuristics. I had a fascinating experience a little later on where we'd been on the cover of Inc. magazine. So we generated enough buzz and enough interest that Inc. magazine flew one of their top flight writers and one of their top flight photographers down to New Zealand to write a story on us and shoot photos of us to then put us on the cover of the magazine. So we'd reached that stage. And I went into a few months. No, this must have been September. This was October or September the same year. I got two big invitations. One was to a large big tech VC arm. I won't mention who they were. But it was, you know, down in Menlo Park. And so I went down to Menlo Park and I was given a lot of time. I was given a generous amount of time to have a conversation with the head partner of the firm. And the end of the conversation was, hey, we really like what you're doing, but we don't, we can't see the five-year plan. We can see the 10-year plan, but we can't see the five-year plan. So let's just keep in touch. And the very next day, I had a meeting with one of the large cat companies in the Bay Area. And they rolled me into a gigantic Cisco video conference room. And they then said, this is what we want to do. And this is where you fit in. And that meeting was like four hours long. And it was so exhausting to me that I had to go back to where I was staying. And I just slept for 18 hours afterwards. It (laughs) blew my mind. And for me, it was kind of like, oh, it was this realization that, yeah, the fundraising game is a heuristics game. If you are able to present an idea in a certain way, framed in a certain manner, you're just like with Sam and Josh, right? We're a totally remote company. Oh, no, 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 that breaks the heuristics. We're not interested. And then the heuristics change over time. Oh, now we're super interested. So that was kind of the thing. And it was, for me, the realization that the funding, the people with the money are not the arbiters of reality. Your customers are the arbiters of reality. And uh, yeah, I don't think I'll ever forget that 48-hour experience. 
One of the big funders said no. One of my customers said yes. What did you do with that energy, right? So it's really easy to take two directions. It comes down to mindset. One direction can be like, everyone is, you almost get angry. Like you can get really angry and like things aren't working out or you can turn it into a healthy chip, like a bit of a chip on your shoulder of, I'm going to go back, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to work twice as hard to prove that geography doesn't matter. It comes down to execution. Both are outcomes that are understandable because people can take either direction. But what did you do with that energy? Like you go to the Bay Area, this thing that you've been aiming for for your entire life. Like since you're a kid, you get there, there's a false bill of sale where people are like, yeah, we like what we see, but we don't like it that much because you don't look like us. You don't sound like us. You don't dress like us. You Like yeah. all of these things that you're yeah, just yeah, like, man, what the heck? How did you think about it? Did you ever get to a place where it was like, initially you were upset or was it always like, I'm just going to go out hustle everyone? I, I, it's the latter. It's kind of like, okay, well, they said no. Okay, well, I'll just go and I'll just, Go and prove that I'll just go and prove that I can do this or that we can do this, you know? And that took much longer. <laughs> that took much longer than I expected. And these things always take longer, right? And so the framing moves from being this kind of transaction to transaction thing where it's kind of like, Series A funding, Series B funding, et cetera. Well, you move from that to being, well, okay, this is a journey. Well, what can I be learning from this journey? What are the aspirational assumptions that I need to discard because they, I'm not able to meet them? What are the things that I can learn? And who are the people I can meet? And who are the customers I can excite? What does that start to look like? And so that became much more of it. And that's actually become my framing when it comes to starting up and running businesses now. It's this combination of looking at a business as an album, a new album from a band. It takes like two years to build an album and then it gets released and it's got a life. And in some cases, it's got a life of 30 years. And in some cases, it's got a life of three weeks. There's this, all this upfront investment from a talented group of people and then the product gets released. So there's that's part of it. And the other part of it, well, the other part of the framing is this idea that it's a journey and the money is one thing that comes out of that, but learning is actually the guts of it. Technical learning and psychological and emotional and all of those sorts of things. And, and that's where I get the most joy meeting learning being invited into the room where you're the dumbest person in the room repeatedly it's kind of like how how do you continue doing that because that's actually really interesting that's the really bit so it becomes a vehicle for being invited into the room as nominally the dumbest person and learning from people that's cool and meeting people that's the that's how that energy changed it's also cool to see how things have evolved with companies that can be models for people locally. So 
let's say Canva. Canva is woven into the tech ecosystem as much as any other company. And they're That's from right. Australia. From Australia. Right? Athletic Greens, New Zealand. Yeah. These are major companies. This is Rogan and Ferris and all of these thought leaders that the world looks up to talks about these companies. And it's not a matter of being an outsider. And it's like, well, we could never, like, we couldn't possibly use Athletic Greens or Canva because they're not one of us. It's, the world is flattening through this renaissance a little bit, but it provides more opportunity to really break down, like, are people doing great things? Hmm. One of the things you touched on, and I know we haven't gone into Makey Makey and Omniblocks, we can maybe not go there, but one of the things that you touched on that's interesting is the the idea of knowing that when things don't work out, you go back to the drawing board and you keep trying. And I think there's a parallel with a health journey, not to mm -hmm. like, oh, for sure, not to dive too deep into it, but from what we see from going through, and everyone's going to have a different health and wellness journey as far as mm -hmm. what they use levels for or anything, like whether or not they're using levels or not. Health takes time, as does founding a company. And you can't snap your fingers and all of a sudden it's like, look, <laughs> it happened. We're there. <laughs> like, it's just, it's ongoing. It's a lifelong journey of learning and adapting. And I think using that mindset, like the way that you framed it of, no, man, like we go back to the drawing board. We keep working at it. We keep trying and we know that it takes time. Mm -hmm it does feel like a parallel to this idea of health and wellness as far as like, you can't just use one product and all of a sudden there's like behavior change overnight. It's like, this takes time and it's something that you dedicate yourself to doing. It's, it feels parallel to a startup. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful statement. We are surrounded by narratives of instant success everywhere. <laughs> Our media is awash with this narrative of overnight success, right? And it's a gross disservice to the people who are trying to achieve their goals, whatever they are, but also to the people who are successful. <laughs> Tell the story of the fact that some poor person had to struggle for years to get to the success that they have achieved. Let's stop telling these bullshit stories of they did something on Monday and they were a billionaire on Friday. That's just not the truth. And it's a sad story, you know, because it doesn't speak to the human condition and the human, the human experience. And that makes me very sad because that component, particularly as I've gotten more experience, that's become the really fascinating thing. As soon as you're able to disentangle yourself from that illusion of instant success or instant fitness or instant health or, or those sorts of things, then you're in a growth story and an exploration story and you can bring people along with that story. The problem with the instant one-person instant success stories, it's one person and that's it. Whereas a journey and a growth story is, no, look, here's a team of people who I love and care about, be it family or be it workmates or other artists or designers or, you know, any, whatever you will. 
And we are on this journey and we are learning stuff and we're building rich lives and we are engaging in the human condition. And for me, that's exciting. That's really interesting. And that's where that health thing is bang on. If you anchor on the wrong things, it can feel defeating because it's like, well, it didn't happen for me that way. And then it's easy to, not that we should give up. It's just that being human, it's easy to throw in the towel on things, being like, well, this health and wellness journey is too hard. This startup's too hard. They don't, like it becomes this spiral of negative self-talk. I'm not ever going to be like those people in the valley. So I might as well stop, you know, and by not allowing yourself to enter into that mental state, then you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And you derive the wrong message from the result, which is I suck. No, the story sucks. (laughs) But you got to change the story. You got to change the story. And so I think for me, that was one of the big things, you know, and later on in my career, it became this thing where, and particularly with COVID, it was kind of like, oh, I needed to reassess a whole bunch of assumptions that I made because basically my MO with projects is I work in New Zealand for, to reach kind of a 70% solution. And then I go into my target market and start pounding the paper. And I'd kind of reached the 70% solution and was ready to get on an airplane in April, 2020. Well, we all know what happened then. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, maybe I need to refactor this for a local market. That failed miserably. But the reason I believe I wasn't successful in that scenario was that I fell into the trap of delting the valuable bits of my story, which was New Zealand's a great place to live and I love it, but I actually like selling stuff in the United States. That's what I enjoy doing. That's where I get the traction. So that's kind of a way of saying, well, you need to review your stories all the time. You know, you need to, and some of them are valuable and some of them you shouldn't abandon and some of them you should abandon. So you changed the story. You did. You yeah. ran Pinoco until 2013. Then you founded Makey Makey or co-founded Makey No, Makey. no, I didn't. No. So there's a gap between Pinoco and Makey Makey. So I ran a computer vision laboratory for a year. That was the one that was made up of a bunch of wetted digital refugees, essentially. And we sold that IP. That became some very early reality capture tech that was used in the first phase of the VR explosion of the 2010s. Then I went to work for Makey Makey. I ran that. I took over running that from the the founder. He did that for five years, and that was... That was a delightful experience. It really was. Real, and part of that was realizing how shit I was at managing people earlier. I was too scared to be the manager that I wanted to be, and therefore I let a bunch of people down. With Makey Makey, I was given the freedom to be the manager that I wanted to be and built a beautiful team of people and And to this day, I'm still in contact with them. We still have really firm, strong relationships. So yeah, again, that's that story thing. 
lifelong learning and yeah. developing through the journey. But then yeah. you ended up co-founding Omniblocks. What led you to that? Like, I mean, it feels like, again, from an outsider's perspective, it feels like an amalgamation of everything you did prior where it's like, well, this is an iteration on all this past experience. <laughs> yeah, and practically it is, right? It's me bringing together very early business analysis work that I did at Provoke, which was the first company, combining with the 3D and the product design work at Pinoco, and then the 3D work that I did at JigLab. And then that's layered over the top of it, running a business like Makey Makey and seeing where these things break and were creaking and where there were these gaps and going, oh, that's an interesting gap. That one over there, that's huge. Let's go and do something in there. Let's find something in there. And so, yeah, we founded Omniblocks and met my co-founder in November of 2020. It's Sean. I've never met Sean. If we look all the way back to this conversation, right? Sean and I have never met face-to-face. Never. But in, we built in context, this, Pacific Northwest. Pacific Northwest, yeah. And I'm in... That's I'm where in, Sean is from. Yeah. yeah, and I'm in New Zealand. But we got on really well and... I mean, we proved that we could ship a product completely remotely using email and video. And that's what then brings us to levels because, you know, the culture fit between our organizations is just bang on. So as we're building now, you're here, we are here together. What is it that you're looking forward to with all your past experience, your lens on tech, the way you've seen it from building in New Zealand, the way you've worked remotely. What do you think about when you think about the long game with Levels as far as what we're building? What is it that excites you and just gets you invigorated? Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that first, like the kid that grabbed the wire, yeah. what brings you back to it that? Is, it is one of those, but that, the second day, the onboarding experience is almost analogous to me taking that magazine off the magazine rack, right? Because I remember sitting there at like 10 o'clock in the morning, New Zealand time. And it just hit me. It was kind of like, there was less than 50 people in the company at the time. Less than 50 people in the company and every single one of these cards on the Kanban board has got at least one video and at least one memo behind it. The totality of that just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was kind of like, oh, I thought I was good. I thought I was good at the culture thing. But I've been banging bricks. I've been banging stones together for the last 20 years. You know, that's how primitive my assessment of it was. And I just looked at what you had done and Ms. and Josh and then Haney and I'd looked at what you had all put together and it was just kind of like, oh, holy shit. I, you know, I'm going back to school, man. This is, it's that dumbest person in the room thing, right? It's kind of like, I'm here to learn. And don't get me wrong, the attractive thing was definitely the big picture, but the thing that gets me up in the morning is the culture thing. 
and damn Josh and damn Miz because Uber was always my big bad. Like it was always my big bad. And they're just you know, incredibly talented, empathetic, articulate people who are doing amazing things. And it's, so that's what I'm here for. It's here to learn that stuff and participate in something that feels iconic, culturally iconic. And that, yeah, that's the thing I'm geeking out on. Maybe we got to command shift three, get you a screenshot of that onboarding checklist and you can put that in a frame beside your wired issue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those, I remember talking to my wife and I said, I think I've joined a cult. <laughs> it was, it was, because it, it reminded, you know, in many respects, it reminded me of my background. You know, I, I was brought up a Catholic, a good, good Catholic. So I've been through the religious indoctrination thing. And I've learned how to deconstruct it too. <laughs> it's so, it was kind of like, this is indoctrination, but I get why they're doing it, you know? <laughs> and it's simple things like learning how to turn off my email. For 20 years, I've never turned off email, solidly. But I do it every day now and I feel good, you know? It's a good decision. And so just understanding those insights, understanding the insights that people that you all had brought to the table and shared and presented. Yeah, sign me up, man. Eh?